He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh. Hello and welcome to the Science AAA's webinar. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. This is the final installment in our Science and Life series in which we've been addressing important, timely and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. If you'd like to watch any of the previous webinars, you can find them at webinars.sciencemag.org. In today's discussion, we are going to help you to get fiscally fit. We hope that the insights and information shared over the next hour will aid you in getting a better financial footing no matter where you are in your career, grad student, postdoc, or professor. We'll talk about some of the basics of personal finances, investment possibilities, tips on how to save, and resources that you can access to educate yourself. Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now I'd like to welcome our very knowledgeable panel with me here in the studio today. Uh, just to my left is uh, Dr. Diane Klotz, Director of the Office of Education, Training and International Services and Associate Dean of Administration and Professional Development in the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at Sanford Burnham Priebus Medical Discovery Institute in La Jolla, California. I'm glad I got through that mouthful. <laughs> um, next is Dr. Emily Roberts, who is a personal finance educator specializing in early career PhDs and owner of the company Personal Finance for PhDs. Uh, next to Emily is Mr. Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy for Indiana University and the Executive Director of the Higher Education Financial Wellness Alliance. He is also co-founder of Money Smarts U, an interactive financial education platform that provides financial education to students. And finally, we have Dr. Anna Maria Lusadi, the Denner Trust Endowed Chair of Economics and Accountancy at the George Washington University School of Business and the founder and academic director of the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center. So a very warm welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for being here in the studio today. And some of you have come a long way, so thank you, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to give each of our guests a, a chance to introduce themselves, as we usually do, and tell, them, tell us a little bit about what they do and what they bring to today's discussion. So Diane, we'll start with you. Thank you, Sean. Um, as Sean mentioned, I am Diane Klotz, and in my role at Sanford Burnham Prebis, I oversee our graduate education administration, as well as our postdoctoral training initiatives. And so, along with my fantastic team um, at SBP, we work with our PhD students and postdoctoral fellows on all aspects of their career and professional development. And it's not infrequent that we receive questions from them wanting to understand what they can do now as students and postdocs to set themselves up financially for the future and also maximize um, the small amount of money that they're receiving from their stipends and their fellowships now. We also work with faculty. Um, the faculty are often not knowledgeable about how they can support their students and postdocs, but it's not because they don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, they really want to understand that. So we try to take a holistic approach and keep the conversation open around a lot of these topics. Wonderful. Thanks, Diane. Emily. Yes, again, I'm Dr. Emily Roberts. My business is Personal Finance for PhDs, and through it, I educate and support PhD trainees and PhDs in the workforce around their finances. And I do so through seminars that I give at universities. Um, I host a podcast also called Personal Finance for PhDs. I run a community called The Wealthy PhD. And I have a variety of free and paid resources and services that are available through my website, which is pf4phds.com. And I started my business shortly after I defended my PhD in biomedical engineering uh, from Duke. And basically at the time I looked around and saw a dearth of resources that were tailored specifically for the unique financial challenges that PhDs face. So I decided to create those resources and I'm delighted to be part of the panel today. Great, thanks Emily. Phil. Hi, uh, my name is Phil Schumann. I'm the Director of Financial Literacy for Indiana University. So in my job, I help imp implement financial education programs for all seven campuses across the state of Indiana. Uh, basically, we focus on students, faculty, staff, and try and figure out ways that we can educate students to help them make informed financial decisions before, during, 
and after college. Uh, so we've done a lot of things in our program. We've implemented a peer-to-peer -peer program. We've launched a website. As Sean mentioned, I'm also co-founder of Money Smart to You, uh, the financial education platform that we built to use in Indiana University and other universities throughout the country. Um, and basically, we do that. And then we also help tackle uh, the idea of emergency aid and other ways that we can help students complete, uh, complete college uh, and avoid some of the barriers to completion. Um, I'm also executive director of the Higher Education Financial Wellness Alliance, which basically just helps put programs in place across the country or helps support institutions that are trying to put financial wellness programs in place uh, at, at their schools, help them tap into some of the research that's out there that shows why this is such a valuable investment for other institutions. Um, and so basically we're trying to launch a national alliance that's going to help institutions get these things uh, up and running. Uh, I should also point out that I did receive a D in high school chemistry, so I am vying for the least sciencey person ever to sit on this panel. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Uh, Anna. So I'm Anna Luzardi. I'm a professor of economic and accountancy at the George Washington School of Business. And as a researcher, I actually do a lot of research on financial literacy and personal finance, measuring how much people know and also looking at the financial decisions. And I have founded the center, the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center, because we also want to disseminate the research work that we do. And as a professor, I actually teach personal finance to both undergraduate and graduate students at GW. And we are probably one of the few universities which we have done so for several years now. I have to say, I go to a lot of conferences where I hear that personal finance is not rocket science. And I have to dispute that because, first of all, it is a science, but also it is a rocket that would falls on people's head when they make poor financial decisions. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to try to avoid that rocket, if possible, <laughs> by the end of this hour. But uh, before we start the discussion, um, we do need to state up front that none of us are professional financial planners, CPAs, or tax experts. So please do not mistake anything we say as professional financial advice. We are simply attempting to provide information that can possibly help you think about how to plan for your financial future. Uh, please always consult a professional before making any decisions with financial or tax implications. So with that disclaimer out the way, um, what I'd like to do is jump in by taking a look at our title. Uh, fiscal fitness for scientists, the cost you pay for ignorance. So there's a few terms there that I'd like to pull out. Firstly, scientists. We three of us at least, or, or three of the panel are scientists, including myself, and we don't exclude you, Phil, but uh, you're, a, you're an honorary scientist for today. Um, so although the webinar is focused at scientists, it certainly applies much more broadly than that, and I think we all agree. I think all of you talk to people besides scientists, so we include engineers and non-PhDs as well in that, so I wanted to point that out. Um, the second thing I wanted to bring up is the, the term fiscal fitness, which I have to admit was not mine. I, I found it uh, in some uh, article online that I read, but I really like the term. And uh, we were talking before the webinar, and, and, and I'm actually going to come to you on this, is that there, there is, there is, it definitely is an analogy to be um, had between wealth and, and health. So maybe you'd like to talk about that and what fit, fiscal fitness could mean. Yeah, I like very much that analogy because, for example, in health, you know, we, we know and we are aware that we have to make some sacrifices today uh, for some you know, better result in the future. And so that intertemporal relationship is also in financial decisions. We sacrifice today, for example, to save, but we are going to have a higher income in the future, for example, when we need, you know, that money. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a very important part. The other thing which I think is very important is that you know we we do this and we make financial decisions because we want to feel better we want to be financially fit and that's a very important part for personal finance kind of remind that the, the objective is uh, actually to you know to live a good life uh, and that's true for health and it's true for financial health as well and I think if I can add um, to your point about being scientists mm -hmm. And what you just said, you know, as scientists, we're all taught to um, follow protocol and standard operating procedures. And a lot of times, these financial decisions are very individualized, but with a little bit of work, 
one can actually create a standard operating procedure or a protocol for themselves. And so I think that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, what goes into that. But there is a way to think about this like a scientist and remove some of the overwhelm that comes when you don't make a lot of money and you're not used to trying to figure out, you know, how do I save money now that I don't really have mm -hmm. for the future. But you can think about it very scientifically and take that approach and maybe that uh, makes it a little less threatening for individuals. I want to add also kind of drawing those two ideas together. Um, I think that PhDs and scientists are also very well positioned to already be doing a lot of long-term thinking with respect to their careers. And personal finance and physical health and so forth also takes a long-term view. And so if you can just shift some of that thinking that you're already applying for, on the career side over to the financial side, I think you'll, you'll be very successful. And I think it's kind of important too, like using the uh, fitness analogy here, like this is a muscle in a way. And it's something you need to be training every single day. And if you can build those habits over the course of time, you're going to be in great shape. Um, so what we want to see people do is really on a daily basis, yeah, the long-term goal is this fiscal fitness, whatever you want to say, but it's going to involve taking steps in the daily process in order to make that happen. So if you can get in the routine of making good financial decisions on a daily basis, you're going to be in great shape long-term. So start off with five financial push-ups a day. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Build it up. But you know, scientists and athletes are in a sense ideally suited to make financial decisions mm -hmm. because they have a long-term horizon and also they know the importance of discipline and practicing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, uh, they are already at a good starting yeah. point. And, and all of these tie in nicely to the third point I wanted to make about the title, and that is the word cost, um, the cost you pay for ignorance, because um, I think to your points is, is scientists um, and I guess everybody needs to think long-term uh, about what they're going to do. And if you don't start doing things early, there is a cost that you're going to pay, right? So any thoughts? I mean, I would say it, it's not just a cost of, you know, a, a compounding interest or anything like that that's going to get you to the retirement standpoint. It's also a cost of, like, mental health, hmm. um, mental well-being here, where if you're not paying attention to your finances, if you're not you know, seeing how you're doing financially on a daily basis, it is going to cost you from a stress standpoint, which is going to affect your ability to really, I mean, your academics, your family life, anything along those lines is going to get touched if you ignore what's going on in your financial life on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In some of our work, we quantify the cost of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And just looking at that behavior, it is a staggering cost. So, for example, if you don't, for example, compare different mortgages and you get, for example, the first mortgage that you are offered and you pay, let's say, just an one percentage point higher interest rate, that's a staggering cost. Mm -hmm. If you don't pay your credit card on time, um, if you pay a lot of fees, that's a staggering cost. If you don't pay attention to your investment and to the fees, you know, the costs are very important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the costs are very real and, and some of the costs are a little bit silent. So, for example, you know, you might not save for retirement and you don't see or feel the cost now, but later on, the cost uh, is there Shazam. and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's uh, actually very visible then. And so, you know, we need to consider and think in short term, but also long term. Mm -hmm. Expand on that slightly mm -hmm. about the ignorance. Um, I think during, especially the PhD training period, when there's a low income and it's very, uh, very difficult to get through that financially, um, people tend to be willfully ignorant, right? They may know in the abstract that it's important to pay attention to their finances, but they choose to, because it is a, a difficult and painful subject, they choose to set that aside and not focus on it. But the thing is that the PhD training period is, in the U.S. at least, 5, 10, 15 maybe years before you can get that higher income. And there is a huge cost in delaying focusing on your finances for that you know, decade-ish period of time because of compounding interest and so forth. We're going yeah, to come to compounding interest for sure mm -hmm. and a few other things. So I, I thought this would bring us nicely to the, the first question I want to ask, and that is uh, what, what are the questions that our viewers need to be asking themselves as they think about their financial future? Because as, as Emily, as you said, the, the decisions are very individual. Oh, sorry, I think it was, it was you, mm -hmm. Diana. The, de the decisions are individual for, for everybody, and we're all going to have different tolerance for risk. We're going to have different goals in our lives. So what are the kind of things they should be thinking about? Um, 
So, Phil, why don't we come to you first? I mean, I think you kind of said it right there. What are your goals? What are your priorities? I think that's mm -hmm. the number one question. Because ultimately, what finances do is they help you accomplish a goal. It could be short term, or I'm hungry, I want lunch. How am I going to accomplish it? Or it's long term, I want to save for my kid's college. You know, how am I going to fund that? Mm -hmm. And I think what you need to do is you need to figure out what your priorities are, and then you need to, need to make sure your financial behaviors match up with what that priority is. We were talking a little bit earlier about the idea of like cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. at this point where if you are saying your goal is this and your finances are actually going to something else, there is going to be this, again, this dissonance there that's going to cause you stress, which is not going to be helpful to you. So you need to figure out, again, what your goals are and then how you can align your uh, behaviors in order to accomplish them. Mm -hmm. It's very important to realize that personal finance is about, in a sense, your you know, objectives, and it's about achieving those, those objectives. It's not the ultimate objective to just make financial decisions. So when my student uh, asks me, you know, what is your course about? What are we going to learn? And I actually tell, tell them, this is a happiness project. And we start the first class by establishing exactly these goals. Mm. Um, and, you know, everybody, uh, you know, will have different ones. Um, and so it's really important to start there. Mm -hmm. So, Emily, maybe you can talk to this. So, Phil mentioned changing behaviors. So, wh how do you get from talking about your goal and recognizing your goal to what you need to do to get there? Yeah, I think the first part of it, which you touched on, is, is really tying your goal to your priorities um, very, very closely. So, um, what is most important to me in my life? Is it, is it my family? Is it adventure? Is it uh, career achievement? Um, and then a process that I, once you've decided what the goal is and how you can carry it out, um, I really love automation as much as possible. So this is actually a difference between the fiscal fitness, the physical fitness analogy and the fiscal one is that, well, you need to put in your time in the gym to have the physical fitness. But a lot of these things with your finances, once you figure out what it is you want to do, they can be automated and then totally operate in the background of your life without you having to put in additional time to it. So that's a strategy that I love to use. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so the next question that I wanted to get to is specifically about uh, PhDs and postdocs, and I wanted to talk about some of the, um, the, the things that are unique to their particular situation. So Emily, we'll, we'll stay with you maybe, because I think you probably talk to the most, uh, most people in that area. Um, so what are sort of your top one or two things that you think um, are critical for PhDs to be thinking about? Uh, well, the first is just to acknowledge the low income period of life that is PhD training. Um, mm -hmm. It's very difficult. I mean, you can only accomplish maybe one thing with your finances, maybe two during that period, which is often just paying for your living expenses, if that. Maybe you can think about something beyond that. So that's one of the challenges, low income. It's a long time horizon to have that low income. But then, of course, at the end of it, you hopefully have an opportunity when your income jumps up to really make some progress with your finances. Um, another really big issue is student loans. Um, that could be from the undergraduate degree, that then the loans are being deferred all the way through graduate school. If they're unsubsidized from the undergraduate degree, they're still accruing interest during that time. Um, and then people, and of course, there could be debt from the graduate degree as well, maybe a master's or maybe a PhD that's slightly underfunded. Um, and then when you get out, there's decisions you have to make about which repayment plan to use and so forth, how to manage that debt um, once it's out of deferment. Uh, another one is the odd income types that PhDs have during training. So we have some PhDs that have W-2 income, but some are being paid on fellowship that doesn't show up on W-2, and that has tax implications and investing implications as well that are a little tricky to figure out. So W-2 is, is regular income? It's employee income. Employee income. Yeah, so when you're a graduate student, usually the term that's used is an assistantship, so an RA or a TA. That is typically reported on a W-2. You are technically an employee of the university, although it's limited to a part-time status. Um, so that's one category. But then often graduate students who are on training grants or fellowships, this applies at the postdoctoral level as well, they typically are not considered employees. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of a whole other <laughs> weird situation there. Mm -hmm. Great. Diane, what are some of the questions that you get from scientists, um, some of the concerns that they have and that are unique to their situation? You know, I think one of the things um, that they tend to ask a lot is, um, why is my institution doing this? And so one of the things we try to explain to them is it's not a single institution. Mm -hmm. um, this has to do with the federal government, has to do with the IRS. And so helping them get through that roadblock in their minds at first, because they, they feel they made a decision in going to this institution and now I'm being punished for being a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And so once we get 
through that, a lot of the questions are just very basic. Okay, well, what do I do now? Um, can I save this? How can I save this? Um, some of our students, depending on where they're coming from, especially our international students, they're not even familiar with the fact that there are some very basic savings options that they can do. So it really just comes down to I don't even know what to do with my money other than the feeling that I don't have enough money to save. So right. what do I do now? Mm -hmm. And then for our um, faculty, <clears throat> it's the same questions. How do I help? Can I give them more money? Can I mm -hmm. add to their stipend? Um, if we have a student or a postdoc who was paid on a, as a W-2 employee, um, that would be for our postdocs, and then goes on a fellowship, they lose some ability to contribute to certain retirement plans, receive the institutional match, and so then our faculty are wondering, well, how can I help them with that? So I get very general, very basic questions um, along those lines. Scientists tend to be uh, mobile, both uh, mm. you know, in their career. You know, often they might change job to job, but also uh, geographically, we see many of them going mm -hmm. abroad, and I think that makes also the financial decision potentially more complex. Mm -hmm. So, something to think about is certainly the income side, the tax side but also the expenditure side. Mm -hmm. So for example, what are some of the benefit and costs that come from living, for example, in a really expensive city? You know, if you move right. from, you know, to Geneva or to Paris or Tokyo or San Francisco, like the cost of living can be particularly high. Or what are, for example, the health costs? And, or what are even the education costs? If you come from your family and small kids, you know, can you send your kids, kids to public school? You know, there, is, there are, countries are very different in that respect. And so people have to be mindful of that so that they can, you know, mm -hmm. have a good standard of living while uh, doing their, uh, while being at the beginning of their career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Phil, maybe I'll ask you this question and that's just maybe, just go over the basics of some of the opportunities for investment that any, pretty much anybody has, but especially including PhDs, assuming that they are able to contribute to uh, tax advantage or retirement accounts. So where can people invest? I mean, so obviously, yeah, there's some caveats here. We have, again, we're not licensed financial advisors, so I can tell you like the, the specific spots where people can invest. You know, I, really to me, there are a few different options. Obviously, if you have the opportunity to go through some sort of employer, um, whether or not it's a 401k, 403b, you know, anything along those lines, that's going to be your first opportunity because obviously those are probably going to be the ones that are going to provide the most benefit for you. Mm -hmm. There could be a match. And there could be a match as well, which is so, fantastic. Right. I so think those are standard retirement accounts that a lot of companies offer. Yep. Um, it's taken out, your money's usually taken out pre-tax. Yes. And sometimes, as Emily said, there's a match. Yes. And, and what I think is most important, and this is regardless of whether or not you have a 401, uh, 401k, 403b, uh, IRA, traditional IRA, Roth IRA, any of those things, what the research shows is that a person that contributes between 12 and 14% of their gross pay per month in total will have a successful retirement. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a PhD student, chances are, you know, a PhD, chances are you're getting started a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So that 12 to 14% is gonna have to be a little bit higher than that. But I think that's good to note. So if you do have a match that's associated with your, uh, with your plan, you know, if your employer says, we're gonna give you 4%, just because that means they're giving you 4% doesn't mean you should stop at 4%. Right. That means what we're saying is if you have to get to 15%, you need to put in 11. But at least you know that that's kind of the metric that we want to get you uh, to where we want to get you. Mm -hmm. And so then, again, the IRAs, Roth IRAs on top of that, that's another opportunity for you to contribute to retirement. Um, and beyond that, you know, you can open up a brokerage account or something along those lines. But really, for me, when I'm talking to students, those types of funds are really reserved for when you have a little bit of discretionary funds. I would not put retirement funds necessarily into a brokerage account just because I think there's more risk involved there and certainly you don't want to tie yourself to more risk at that point. Right. I'd like to add to that. So independent of the workplace, you might be able to open an IRA, as you've mentioned, independent retirement arrangement, Roth or traditional version. Uh, this is very likely for graduate students, all that would be available to them. Mm -hmm. uh, their, their workplace is not going to provide anything in the vast majority of cases. Uh, and if you have W-2 income, as of today, you can contribute to an IRA from that. It's a little trickier with people on fellowship. So for up until now, if you had fellowship income, non-W-2, that was not eligible to be contributed to an IRA. Now there's, just yesterday, the Graduate Student Savings Act passed the House. If it passes the Senate, that will close that, uh, that 
reverse the loophole, I don't know how you'd put it, so that fellowship, non-W-2, um, is considered taxable compensation for the purposes of contributing to an IRA. So if it does pass the Senate, this is really great news for the PhD population because it means that during graduate school, if you have the funds to do it, you now have the eligibility, no matter what your pay type, to contribute to an IRA uh, to that tax advantage kind of account. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not necessary to start off by contributing $1,000 a month, even $20, $50, you know, I would think we'll start getting you there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, it's just built, it's starting to build those habits. Mm -hmm. So even yeah. just a little bit starts to, you know, get that process going and obviously that's going to benefit you in the long term. And the time in your, is on your side, <laughs> like you have to right. use the time, you know, if you are, you know, if you are already an older person, you know, because you have done, you know, a four years or five years of a PhD and so on, you know, it, you're still, in a sense, try to take advantage of the time mm -hmm. and try to do it as early as possible. And I was just going to say, you know, for anybody out there listening today, um, I know at my institution that does, um, has a nice match for the 403B, um, less than half of our eligible postdocs participate. Wow. And I know it's so challenging when you don't make a lot of money and you don't feel you have that income to contribute. But I would say, you know, talk with someone who can help you look at your finances and figure out how you can at least, if nothing else, not lose that match that your employer is giving you because that's money that um, someone is just giving you. So so, so just to clarify, if, if the folks out there don't know what, what a match is, mm -hmm. there are some employers that if you contribute a certain amount into a retirement account, they will match either sometimes 50% or or a hundred percent of whatever you put in. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially free money, right? Mm -hmm. It's not taxed. Mm -hmm. It goes into a, a retirement account. So, you know, that's leaving money on the table. And usually so. the only thing you have to do to be assured that when you leave that institution, you will keep that money is be there for a certain amount mm -hmm. of time. So that's something right. to look yep. into too. So. Um, also, you know, for my institution, it's one year, but for others, it's two or three years. So just checking into that. But So that's the, mm -hmm. the vesting schedule. The vesting yep. schedule. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's good to ask about as well. Mm -hmm. Great. So I think this'll, this brings us around to, to the next topic that I wanted to talk about, and that's just some of the, the, the fundamental concepts of uh, financial planning. And the one that we've mentioned a couple of times is the power of compounding. So um, I'm, probably our audience knows about this. There might be some people who don't. So I thought just very briefly we touch on this. So essentially this talks about, and I've heard the rule of 72 is one way of looking at it, or the 7, 710. Um, so that basically means if you earn 7% 7 interest on your investments, you double it in 10 years. Or the rule of 72 is you divide the 72 by the interest rate and that tells you the number of years it will take to double your money. So essentially you start off with, with $5,000 in, uh, if you get 7% in 10 years you'll have $20,000 and by the time you retire that will be hundreds of thousands potentially. So um, any thoughts about this? Is, is there a misunderstanding out there? Maybe Anna will, will ask you So first this. of all, this is the, the principle I love the most because it's mm -hmm. at the basis of every financial decisions, you know, and it has very powerful implication. It says you have to start as early as possible. Time is on your side. Mm -hmm. And by the way, everybody's endowed uh, young people are endowed with time. So mm -hmm. we all have that resource, and in a sense, we have to use it. Um, and also, you know, it means that the sooner you start, the better you are. You know, interest compounding work in your sleep. And, you know, for scientists, you know, they are not afraid of math. You know, so we don't even, I don't teach the rule of 72 in my class. I go right to the formula because it's a beautiful formula. It really says, you know, that even small amount count and that, you know, time is really important and that's how you know you can accumulate wealth over time um, and also remember that you know it works both ways if you borrow at a very high interest rate you know 24% interest rate is a huge interest that means mm -hmm. you know your debt will double very quickly right. and we, in, in some of the presentations we do we show this example uh, there's the one side where somebody starts contributing $5,000 a year which is not doable for everybody, but let's say $5,000 a year between uh, every year between the ages of 25 and 35. So they put in a total of $50,000 uh, over the course of those 10 years, and they let it ride until age 70 when they retire. And if you use a pretty modest rate of return of about 8%, that $50,000 turns into $1.25 million by the time you retire. 
On the flip side of things, let's just say you're stressed out from all the time you spent in school. You're like, I don't want to contribute to retirement in those first 10 years after I graduate. So you start investing at age 35, and between the ages of 35 and 70, you put in $5,000 a year. You put in a total of $175,000 during that time. That $175,000 ends up being, relatively speaking, only a million dollars. So you can either have a million dollars for the price of $175,000 or $1.25 million for the price of $50,000. Wow. And so that's just by delaying 10 years. And then mm-hmm. even in that case, like that other person, or that first person, not contributing those additional 35 years on top of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also wanted to touch on, because I don't know how much time we'll have to get to the details of this, but to, to Anna's point um, about um, costs, is if you are investing in expensive uh, financial products like certain uh, managed mutual funds and you're paying maybe 2% fees as opposed to uh, an index fund which is maybe less than 1%, you are losing a lot of money as well. And Anna, you you had a figure, I I forget what it was. Yeah, so like one percentage point over 30 years is a quarter of your wealth about, right? So like, again, interest compounding works because the fees are, you know, sure. And so, you know, one percentage point is a big fee that you are paying. So, you know, Mm -hmm. be very, very careful. I think also the academic research is is pretty uh, clear on that, that, you know, index fund, which have the lowest fee, are usually the one that deliver, you know, these uh, higher return over over time. And mm-hmm. so it's really important to consider, in a sense, the interest compounding when we look at the interest rate and when we look at the fees as well. Mm-hmm. What I like to say in my seminars, actually, is that um, index investing or passive investing is the most effective, this is on average, the most effective, least expensive, and most time efficient manner of investing. The expense is a very important part of it, um, just because it's very counterintuitive. We usually, we usually think to get the best outcome, I have to put in a lot of time or I have to put in a lot of money. But it turns out that paying for these expensive managed mutual funds is totally counterproductive. Um, you are sure about the fees, and they're very high, and they cost you a lot of time. It doesn't get you a better return. It turns out that those index funds are, again, the most effective way to invest. And again, this is really important for people that I speak to as well. It's very a very time-efficient manner, manner of investing. Investing does not have to be your part-time job. Goodness right. sakes, no. <laughs> it can be, you know, you do a few hours of research, you understand what's going on a little bit, you make a decision, and as we talked about earlier, automate it. Let it ride from that point forward. It's not something you have to really keep on top of. I mean, check in from time to time, but it's not a very hands-on process. Right. And I'll, I'll also mention just one other thing that I've come across is um, there's also target date funds, which are, I think, even easier where you say, I want to retire at, by this date, and then the fund actually does the calculations and invests for you and will shift those investments over time as you get closer mm-hmm. to retirement. So. Yes, actually, so what happened is you know, the index fund might be uh, indexed, for example, to the stock market, but it, with a target fund, it shifts the composition of those, for example, uh, risky asset mm-hmm. uh, toward, uh, uh, you know, a, for example, less risky as you approach retirement. Again, careful about the fees because the target fund, because they mm-hmm. do so, so they have to manage yeah, that a little bit, right? right? They have to shift from the riskier to the safer asset. They will charge you for that. So if you are able to do so, you also save some fees. But again, you can automate your investment in that way as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably should mention now that there are resources that um, are just to the right. There's a resource tab that the audience can click on, and there's, there's plenty of resources in there. There's uh, also a PDF that I provided, uh, some podcast links and some documents. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of information out there on people who've done a lot of academic research on this, mm-hmm. have looked at all of the data. And uh, there's one um, uh, person that I know that has, he lists, I think it's, it might actually be uh, J.L. Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a three-fund portfolio, there's a four-fund portfolio, there's a seven-fund portfolio, very basic. And, bas- you know, you can look at those and tweak them a little bit, but they make it very, very easy to do this. I'd, I'd like to so, add a note, if yes. you don't mind, for international scholars, at least who are in the U.S., sure. mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes they think that they cannot invest or should not invest in the time that they're in the U.S. But um, I've recently learned from an interview I did for my podcast that this is uh, really not the case. And if you have the means to invest, um, and of course potentially the ability to use an IRA or something, um, the person who I interviewed said, 
why not? Like, what is the big compelling reason that as an international student or postdoc, you shouldn't be investing well in the U.S.? Just go ahead and do it. Um, work out, you know, the potential tax implications or the if you have to move the money later on, that can be worked out later. But again, don't waste the time because right. you could be in the U.S. for five years or more. Don't let the time go by. Um, and it's just a matter of finding a, a brokerage firm that will work with you. Right. Yeah, and when, when I came to the U.S., I came from South Africa, and I had no idea that I would stay here. I was doing a postdoc. So it sometimes is worth investing just in case you, you do stay in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, another thing, I, I, a couple of other fundamental concepts I wanted to touch on just over in a couple of minutes. Uh, one is inflation, um, so something to consider. And I know that folks don't always understand inflation. Um, and that is basically that you're, if you just keep your money in cash, eventually over time the, the, what you can buy with it is going to be worth, it's going to be less and less. So um, if you just put your money in a savings account where you're getting 0.1% interest, it's not getting you very far. Mm -hmm. um, Which is true, so. but I think the one thing to point out, that's for money that you want, like for money you want to grow, Absolutely, that should not be in just a boring old savings account. But mm -hmm. when we talk about emergency funds for things that you need immediately should something happen, those should be in boring old savings accounts because you'll need mm -hmm. access to them quickly. Great. Would you like to say a bit more about emergency funds? So, so with emergency funds, basically just the, uh, we want you to have a savings account that basically is dedicated to when things go wrong. Because things will go wrong. I'm guessing all of us have, have had an experience of that over the course of time. And ideally, I think what you'll hear most people say is somewhere between three to six months of fixed expenses should be in that emergency fund. Um, and from there, once you have that established, then you could start, you know, if you're regularly saving, then from there you could start saving for buying a house or for saving for travel or doing something else that you want to do with your money. But you need to have that emergency fund set up first before you can really tackle these other things in your life. Mm -hmm. If it seems, because three to six months of expenses is a big number, yes. especially for a graduate yes. student, um, $1,000, $2,000, yes. any any bit of money you can start mm -hmm. putting away is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, don't feel like just because you can't get to three to six months, the whole endeavor is right. worthwhile. Just be able to build it up over time. Yeah, and that is what we do tell most students is that $1,000, if you can get to that benchmark, then that's the point you can say, like, I'm in good shape um, right. for when something does go wrong. I want to go back uh, quickly to inflation because normally, mm -hmm. you know, we think that there are these three concepts which are fundamental for everybody to know, which is interest compounding, inflation, and risk diversification. And you know, risk already came back to us as saying, you know, it's critically important. But you know, inflation is another, in a sense, concept that people really need to keep in mind. Every financial decision is about the future, in a sense, and we need to keep into consideration that prices do rise over time. And so, if you don't take action, you are actually getting poorer mm -hmm. over time right. just because prices you know rise and interestingly now at a low rate you know potentially you know even low less than two percent but you know two percent over time still is uh, an increase and so you know it's not safe in a sense I always say is this you know putting the money into the mud uh, under the mattress is the less safe thing you can do because you are losing purchasing power you might actually uh, even lose the money if you forget about that and it's not fun to sleep on uh, money anyway. <laughs> um, and I, I was just looking uh, at some of the questions that have come in and uh, somebody mentioned um, in Europe that there are now some banks that have a negative interest rate. So mm -hmm. you're essentially Absolutely. paying them to hold mm -hmm. your money. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> any thoughts it on is, how to deal with that? It is happen, right? I mean, the interest rate, remember, is the price of money. There is no guarantee that it is positive. But mm -hmm. when it comes negative, it's such a challenge, yeah. right? Because in fact, now you are paying for the use of your money. Right. And to me, this is really a risky environment today because, you know, it's so hard to grow your money. And I think people are so eager to get that return and you know the things that I'm sure we will discuss as well is the relationship risk return right so you know for people now who are chasing high return unfortunately you have to take a lot of risk because right. the basic interest rate is just so low and in fact even negative mm -hmm. so I did I did want to come to that I think that's a, a great segue um, so you know back to what we were talking about in the beginning is is um, personal finance is very individual, it's very personal, um, and everybody has a dis different risk tolerance. 
Um, so some people can sleep well at night with 100% of their money in stocks. Others, they're going to be you know, constantly worried about what the stock market is going to do. So how do you approach that? Uh, Diane, maybe you can mm -hmm. talk to this. When you're talking to people about how to do their investing, you know, how much should I put in this particular pot, you know, the stock market? How much should I put in bonds to be a little bit safer? How much should I keep in a savings account? Well, I definitely don't advise them in that way. Um, <laughs> no, but I'm glad you brought up that point because it's something I was thinking as um, I was listening to the conversation conversation, money and finances can be a huge source of stress for some individuals. I mean, for a lot of people, I think. Um, for some people, it's very energizing out there now to hear this conversation, but I also know the population I work with, and for some people listening, they're getting more and more stressed as they hear <laughs> this. And so what I want to make sure is that they're using this information not to suddenly be beating themselves up mm -hmm. or worried that they're never going to get where they would be, because we say a lot of, you should do this, you should do that, and it's a word we use a lot in the English language. Right. And so I just don't want anybody um, to, to be more stressed listening to this than um, before. Um, but to answer your question, what I do talk about is exactly that. What is stressing you out the most? Mm -hmm. And once I understand what's stressing them the most about the money, for some of them it's, um, you know, I have a family in another country that I'm sending money to, and I need to keep doing that, but I need to be able to pay my rent here. For others, it's really like, you know, I would like to take a year off after graduate school before I do my postdoc and travel and figure out what I want to mm -hmm. do career-wise. Others um, have a family. Some of them come back to school after having worked for many years. So what I try to do is understand what what are you most stressed about right now? What would your life look like if you're not stressed? Like what do you how do you see yourself, you know, being able to sleep peacefully at night and not waking up worried about this money type of thing? And then we just go from there. And then I try to point them in the right direction. Um, we have mm -hmm. some people at the institution but others outside of the institution of who they might be able to talk to. Um, three very knowledgeable professionals right here um, mm -hmm. who I'll be sending people to as well. So, <laughs> but I think it's really about understanding, um, for me, what stresses you out the most because that's what I want to mitigate because I'm trying to help our students get through graduate school, our postdocs decide where they want to go um, after their postdoctoral training. And so with all of this floating around, it distracts from their success in those areas. So anything I can do to minimize the stress around this mm -hmm. is where I try to go. Great. Um, so talking about stress, how about we talk about debt and, and <laughs> debt management? Um, mm -hmm. Not to make anybody more stressed than they already are, um, but hopefully this, this will be helpful. So um, uh, what do our viewers need to know to successfully manage their debt? What should, should they be thinking about? Um, you know, they might have student loans, they might have mortgage debt, they might have credit card debt, uh, car loans. You know, how, how do we think about this, Emily? Well, I would say the first thing to consider is the interest rate on all of the debts, and then you can um, create a plan for which one to tackle first. Um, some kinds of debt, I would say, especially high interest rate debts, need to be kind of tackled before just about anything else that you do with your finances, maybe accepting the emergency fund of some degree. Yeah. Um, but then lower interest rate debt, like especially mortgage debt, mm -hmm. um, you know, compared to against the, the long-term rate of inflation in the U.S., mortgages are not at a much higher um, interest rate. And so mm -hmm. that could be something that you put off until you have all your retirement accounts being funded and so forth. So the first thing to look at, I think, is the interest rate, and then you can kind of triage the situation from mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's right. Um, I think we also look at it a couple different ways where if you're trying to prioritize how to get rid of your debt the fastest, aside from like a credit card, if you have some sort of like 20% interest rate, yeah, you definitely need to tackle that first. You know, you need to organize your debts in such a way that's going to be beneficial for you getting rid of it as fast as possible. Now, what most pe or mathematically what you should do is obviously prioritize by interest rate, but we do find that there's a human component to it. There's a behavior piece to it, mm -hmm. where if you're putting a lot of effort towards something and you're not seeing progress initially, so if you, you could use this as an example, you could use like if you're going to the gym all the time trying to lose weight and you don't see much progress, you're more likely just to be like, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm gonna go right. eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> so what we do see is there's this psychological component to it where you do organize it not by interest rate, but by instead the amount left, the, mm -hmm. the balance that's left on the loan. You organize it that way, and if you see the progress going faster, you feel more incentivized to keep going. Mm -hmm. So again, if you go back to the gym, you're working out all the time, and you're seeing that weight loss progress initially, you're gonna keep going. Right. And so we wanna see people do that too if they don't feel like they have the discipline to stick with it, if that they're not seeing that balance go down uh, mm -hmm. as fast. Mm -hmm. Another way to say that is manage your credit score. 
Mm. Your credit score, because it's a score, is actually a summary of your behavior. Mm. And it also matters very much for the interest rate you're going to get. So, you know, a, a big recommendation is just have the highest credit score possible. What it means is, first of all, pay on time. Uh, what it means is don't max out on kind of credit cards and so on and have a good mix as well of your debt. Um, the credit score is consequent, consequential today. So, you know, your credit card uh, interest rate will be lower. Your mortgage will be lower. Your employer even knows your credit score. Mm. So he knows which type of person you are in the type of financial decision you make. But, you know, if your, in a sense, credit score is poor, there are consequences in the long term as well because it's going to make borrowing, for example, much more expensive today and in the future. So, so that's another way in which you can be savvy about mm -hmm. your debt. I, w I would challenge that a little bit. Like credit score is absolutely important mm -hmm. and people should, you know, definitely try and get mm -hmm. a good credit score. But I think one thing we don't want to see people do is trying to achieve a perfect credit score because right. there, no, are no, some th there are some mm -hmm. things in there that would right. actually uh, make you create some negative financial behaviors. So right. what right. we tell people is once you have a credit score and your credit score is between 300 and 850, once you have above a 720, just mm -hmm. keep doing what you're doing mm -hmm. because 10% mm -hmm. of your, uh, your credit score is made up of that diversified mm -hmm. portfolio of credit. Mm -hmm. And basically what that means is if somebody's like, we're going to try and help you get a, a good credit score or a better credit score, mm -hmm. one of the things they may recommend is you take out different types of debt. Mm -hmm. And it seems mm -hmm. counterintuitive, like for you to improve, improve your financial life, you have to take yeah, out okay. more debt. Right. So we want people to also understand that a credit score is not an indication of your financial health, it's an indication of your borrowing health. Right, right. yes. That's how you are rated. So it's important to be aware of that because mm -hmm. it has consequences on your interest rate. Yeah. It doesn't take into consideration, for example, your mental health cost. Right. And it can be very <laughs> stressful, right, to do certain things or, you know, or to be able to right. pay on time. But I think you have to be savvy mm -hmm. about how you manage your debt and be aware, I would say, at least of your credit score and how it is calculated so you can factor it in. And, and we should say, so um, I know the credit score in the U.S. I'm familiar with that system. I'm guessing there are other countries that have similar systems, maybe slightly different. But I know that this is particular to the U.S. and I know it's used extensively, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, by, right. even by employers who will look at your credit score before hiring you. Right. Um, so it's something to be aware of. If, if folks don't know anything about the credit score but know very little, there's a lot of information online. Uh, there's basically three credit rating agencies, and they all produce their own credit scores, which could differ very slightly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, trying to manipulate your credit score, I think, is a very dangerous thing to do mm -hmm. um, because it's made up of, uh, you know, th some things that are transparent, but others that are very opaque. And mm -hmm. but you know, a good financial behavior achieved that good credit yeah, right. score, right? And so that's another incentive, right. in a sense for good financial behavior, in particularly at the debt side, mm -hmm. right? So when you don't pay your credit card on time, unfortunately, this has implication beyond that simple operation. Mm -hmm. There is a misconception floating out there that it's positive for your credit score to mm -hmm. maintain a balance, for instance, right. on a credit card. Absolutely. Not yeah. true. Not <laughs> pay them all off every month. Don't try right. to manipulate the but, score in that yeah. way, because it's just right. not true. Right, because I mean, at the end of the day, like, would you rather have some debt or no debt? And I would right. hope the answer would be no debt. Right. And if that's right. the case, pay off your credit cards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's actually why I don't really care for the term debt management, because um, mm -hmm. it I know that debt is, is a part of almost everybody's life, especially in the U.S., but um, it's not ideal. And really, we should be talking, I think, about debt elimination and not debt management. Of mm -hmm. course, for a time, you have debt. You need to manage your way out of it. But um, debt is not necessarily, it's not a requirement for your life. You can, you know, operate right. through your life largely right. debt-free should you choose to. But also, we shouldn't follow a rule zero debt, right? I mean, mortgage debt is, you know, in the U.S. is uh, almost essential also because, you know, there are tax implications. You can, you know, uh, the debt per se can, can be very beneficial and also student loan. You know, you might take up the debt to go to school. So, you know, we don't want to follow a strict rule. So I, I want to pick up a question that, that came in uh, because I think it comes to an important point. Uh, and the, the question is, is it necessary for PhDs to study financial statements? Um, so the, and the, re the reason I bring this up is because my, my, I guess my answer would be it's important for everybody to study financial statements. And you know, back to what you were saying, Diane, that, that half the people don't even get their employer match. Maybe if they looked at 
at their their uh, paychecks and their statements, they they might learn something. So. Maybe we could, any, any thoughts on uh, how you might answer that question? Well, I mean, I think just at the very basics of going back to my point about eliminating stress or reducing stress in your life, um, the more you know, um, the more you can manage. Hmm. And I know a lot of people who have um, tried to look at financial statements way after the fact and um, you know, get very stressed out and then they're in a state that they didn't even realize they were getting themselves mm -hmm. into. So I think just from that perspective alone, mm -hmm. um, it's really important. The, the one thing I would say, like, because I think this is what's happened now with like mobile banking and all this, is there's an opportunity to go into your account on a daily basis and look to see yeah. and mm. obsess with it and see how much money <laughs> right. that's there. Don't do that either. And, and yeah. a lot of people, what they will end up doing is they will play the game of, all right, if there's this amount of money in my bank account, I can go out and do this. Right. Right. Yeah. And so there's a balance between mm -hmm. budgeting, you know, getting all your finances together and making sure that you're in a healthy situation and checking how much money you have on a regular basis. But people mm -hmm. should absolutely be in tune. Right. with what's in their, you know, in their various financial yeah. accounts. And I think that's one tool in that progress you were talking mm -hmm. about. If you see, if you're viewing, you know, especially if you have um, an automatic transfer from your, you know, your check goes into your, your paycheck, your stipend, whatever goes into your checking account, and you have an automatic transfer, even if it's just $20 yeah. a month to your savings account, you're mm -hmm. not touching that, you see that go up. That's that positive reinforcement yep. that right. says, oh, maybe I'm going to try to do $30 next month, you yeah. know, so I think it can work that way as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to come back, uh, we have about 10 minutes left, um, come back to something that Emily was talking about earlier and that's, um, we, we all know that uh, uh, graduate students and postdocs are not the best paid workers in the world um, and I think once, when um, people get out of their, their graduate programs or out of their, their postdoc and into a, a quote real job, um, they, they have a lot of catching up that they feel they need to do. So what are some of the ways that they can catch up? Do you have any, any thoughts and advice? We'll, we'll start with you, Emily, since I know you talk about this. Yeah, so there's a really popular piece of advice in personal finance broadly, which is live like a college student, which <laughs> means when you have your first job post-college, keep your lifestyle low, save the difference, and don't immediately inflate your lifestyle. I think the better advice is live like a graduate student, or mm -hmm. because graduate students sometimes even have a lower lifestyle than college students do. Uh, but the general principle is, you know, once your income increases, Okay, sure, if you've been living really close to the bone, if you're at the poverty level, yes, of course you're going to be increasing your spending, you want to be comfortable, but really you should be targeting um, making up for you know, the, the lost income over those previous years, and that means saving a lot, investing a lot, uh, paying off debt uh, quickly. Um, and because you hopefully have a much higher income, there's really a lot of room to be able to do that if you don't you know, radically increase your housing expenses, radically increase your transportation expenses, and other similar fixed expenses in your life. Mm -hmm. So get the more expensive ramen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and let's not forget uh, the importance of negotiation. You know, and I say yeah. that in particular for uh, female scientists. You know, we see that women, you know, tend not to ask, tend not to negotiate. And I think that's really important. You know, once you have an offer, in a sense, that's the time to negotiate. And if you cannot negotiate on salary, negotiate on other things, your moving costs, your other costs, helping getting work for your spouse or helping getting, you know, maybe like a subsidized education for your kids at the, at the school, at the uh, center, at the lab level, and so on. You know, mm -hmm. it's a critical, important time. And, you know, the, the level of that income or, you know, keeping those expenses low is, can also help you mm -hmm. in making up for, you know, potentially a relatively low income. So, so getting into that first job, don't just, you know, because it's, don't you're getting accept. paid so much more yeah. than you were as a, as, a, as a postdoc or grad student, don't just grab it and say, okay, yeah. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. um, so good, so negotiate. Um, something we didn't touch on when we talked about debt was debt repayment mechanisms. And I think, Phil, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, public service loan forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, so obviously public service loan forgiveness is big in the academic world. Um, more than likely, you're going to be working for a nonprofit. So there's an opportunity to take advantage of public service loan forgiveness. Um, there have been a lot of stories that have come out lately that have said, like, people are not getting their loans forgiven. Um, I think there's some caveats to that, that, like, basically this, the program works. It's still new, and certainly it's new in terms of people actually qualifying to get rid of it because the program started, what, 12 years 12 ago? Years. 12 years ago. So now we're seeing, for the, like, the first people that have ever qualified to get rid of the loans uh, or have their loans forgiven. That's now starting to take place. 
But what it means is, though, you need to be diligent about all the paperwork that you have that's going to show that you've been paying on your debt for those 10 years, that you have been um, that you've been employed during those times. You have the employer showcasing, they're showing that you've been working for them as well. You've been showing how much money you're making over the course of time. And if you keep all that paperwork together, you should qualify to have your loans forgiven after those 10 years. Um, what we have seen is that some of the mistakes people have made is some of the student loans they've taken out, they don't qualify. So you need to make sure when you're taking those loans out that they do qualify. Um, and then you just need to be contacting your loan, uh, loan servicer and making sure that you're up to date and not just assuming that everything is going according to plan. Because this is a big deal, especially for those in the academic world, that if you can have your loans forgiven, it is going to be a big help in terms of helping you uh, move your financial needle forward. Loan servicers, certain loan servicers are pretty notorious for dropping the ball yes. on recording the payments properly and everything. So it's really important for the, the borrower to stay on top of that. Um, public service loan forgiveness is, is a, a great boon for some people, but I don't want um, a PhD thinking that just because they're eligible, it's the right path for them. If you have the opportunity to pay off your loans faster, faster than 10 years and yep. without forgiveness, certainly consider it. It's mm -hmm. not, it obviously depends on the amount you borrow and the amount that you make and so forth, but don't think just because you're eligible that's the right path mm -hmm. for you. Great. Um, so we, we've had a number of questions and we, we did touch on this, but perhaps it's worth repeating. We, we've had, I think, three or four questions from the audience about what investment opportunities are available for students um, or fellows that are not on W-2 um, earned income, um, especially for retirement. So maybe we can just recap some of that and yeah. Emily, maybe you could do that for so us. If the Graduate Student Savings Act passes the Senate this week, I don't know in what year this goes into effect, but we will start to have the opportunity con to contribute non-W-2 fellowship or training grant income to IRAs. So the, the problem and the prohibition that people have had in the past, if this passes, will be reversed. Now, if for some reason it doesn't pass and we continue in the situation that we've had with W-2 non-W-2 fellowship and training grant income not being eligible to go into an IRA, there are certain workarounds, by the way, if you're married to someone with taxable compensation, mm -hmm. you can contribute. If you have a side hustle, you can likely contribute from that income. But assuming that you don't have any workarounds, or maybe even the case that, hey, you max out your IRA and you want to go beyond that, that's the point when the brokerage account, the taxable brokerage account that Phil mentioned earlier, is appropriate to use, um, at least until the time that you have that 401k or the 403b and you get more contribution room. So even a taxable account at this stage is actually really advantageous, specifically because um, for graduate students, sometimes postdocs, if you're in that 12% marginal income tax bracket or lower, you actually have 0% federal capital tax on capital gains and qualified dividends. So if you're using this index investing strategy and you hold your investments over the long term, you actually have a very low tax rate while you have this low income. So it's not a big disadvantage to be yeah. using the brokerage account. IRA is certainly preferable if you have access. Okay, yeah. Great. Um, and there are some complications for international students. Um, I, I, or is it purely the income, the, the type of income you have, or are there certain restrictions to international students investing? Uh, I really recommend that people go to this recent interview I did from just a couple weeks ago um, on my podcast. It's titled, Can and Should an International Student Scholar or Worker Invest While in the U.S.? Um, there's some nuances in that conversation, but the broad answer is, Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter if you're not a resident. Um, your income type does matter with respect to what we just discussed. Um, it's, it's really a matter of, okay, maybe you called one brokerage firm and they won't work with you. Maybe it's because of your country of origin or the fact that you don't have a social security number. Maybe you did get a no from one place. Keep calling around because by law, it's permissible. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of fa finding an institution that will work with you. Great. So we're almost out of time, so I, I want to just give you an opportunity. Uh, we can have a quick go around. Any final thoughts, any advice you'd like to, to give to the folks out there? Diane, should I put you on the yeah. spot? It's, you know, my advice is just don't stress. Um, like you mentioned earlier, you have time. Mm -hmm. um, and all of us have time. Even if you're further in your career, you have, you have time. Um, it's never too late to start, um, but, but don't stress. Just take a deep breath and um, start chipping away a little bit at a time and talk to people who can give you advice about these types of things. Mm -hmm. 
So it's kind of like Find exercise. A partner. You, you, you start somewhere. You exactly. Got to, you got to start even if yeah. it's walking. Exactly. Absolutely. Right, Emily? Yeah. To build on that, I mean, of course, if you could save, you could invest, pay down debt, do that. Um, stretch yourself to be able to do that even during the training period. But if you can't, if you're not there yet, um, other practices will help you a ton as well. Just budgeting, tracking your savings, um, evaluating your fixed expenses from time to time, seeing if you can reduce them. These are the kinds of habits that you should be getting into, and you can use that time when you're in PhD training to develop those habits, and then it'll serve you very, very well once you have that nice higher income later on, and you can really hit the ground running with your finances at that point. Mm -hmm. Great, Phil. I'm going to kind of tack on to what Diane said earlier, and I'm going to do something that I think is sort of counterintuitive, or something we don't normally mention within the um, within the financial space, is that we don't want to see people stressed out about their finances, or we don't want to see people stressed out while they're in school. And so what that means is we don't want people to be working more and more hours trying to make additional income that's going to help them get through that period of time where really those additional hours that they're working is creating more stress. Mm. So the counterintuitive point of this is if you need to take out some loans to help you get to the end, if there's some additional student loans you could take out to help you get to the end of that process, that could be beneficial for you just from a mental health standpoint. Mm. And I would honestly encourage you to look into that if that's something you think might be beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. I want to end with a quote that uh, I normally end my course with, which is Mm -hmm. a quote from Benjamin Franklin. And he says, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. <laughs> and I think it really applies here, which is that you know I really encourage, and scientists of course have already invested so much in knowledge, but you know, again, it's the same application here. Invest in a little bit of knowledge because it will make you feel confident, aware, and you'll have this peace of mind to make those decisions, which by the way, you can consult an advisor, mm-hmm. you know, but you at least know what to ask of that advisor. You can make that advisor work for you and you'll be really better prepared for all these financial decisions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, follow right. that advice. And Benjamin Franklin was a fantastic scientist as well. Absolutely. <laughs> so here is so. another connection. Great. And risk taker. And yeah, <laughs> very true. So, and uh, uh, as I mentioned before, the resources tab will have a number of links that you can go to. There's plenty of great information there. But uh, unfortunately, we've reached the end of uh, this webinar. We are out of time for today. Um, So we'll have to end our discussion here. So many, many thanks to our fantastic panel for taking the time to join us here and share their knowledge and expertise. Uh, Dr. Diane Klotz, uh, Dr. Emily Roberts, uh, Mr. Phil Schumann, and uh, Dr. Anna Lissari. So thank you all so much. It's been fantastic having you. Again, thank you very much to our panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. On his way, he's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh. And every mother's child is gonna spend.